Romans 8, verse 28. And we know. Now Paul seems to be playing right there off of what he said in verse 26. There he said, we don't know. Oftentimes we don't know how to pray as we ought. But here he says, we do know something. We may not know that, but we know this. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29. For or because. Now look, I know a lot of times we read the promise from Romans 8, 28. We know that, we memorize it. But Paul gives us the for or the because right at the beginning of verse 29 because he wants to leave us some foundation for this promise. Promise isn't there all by itself. Paul's going to build on this. He's going to give us some reason for this thing. For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It's been over a month since I've stood here, it seems like just yesterday in one sense that we looked at Romans 8, 28. We've already had two messages. This morning a third. I'm thankful to once again be together with you all here in this big yellow building of Fatty's Burgers to study the glorious book written by the Apostle Paul to the church that once met at Rome. And you know, that church probably did not meet in a fancy building with pews and a steeple either. They probably met in a shop or a home or a barn Or the catacombs. They would have probably felt right at home with us here in this place. But you know what? They're all gone now. Gone to be with the Lord. They were real people. They all had faces. They all had names. They lived their lives. They ran the race. They fought the good fight of faith. They persevered to the end. I'm talking about the real Christians, the real church at Rome. I don't doubt there were some false brethren in their midst, like no doubt there are here. But there was a church of Jesus Christ. There were God predestined, called, justified men and women like we have here. They had their day. But you know what? This is our day. It's a different day. It's a new day. But we run the race just like they did and the very same hope they had. It's ours. Their hope. Their desire then. Our hope. Our desire now. They're the same. Isn't it? It's the desire to make it to the end. Now hear what I'm saying. It's not just to get to the end. Everybody gets to the end. One way or another, you're going to get there. Our hope isn't just to get there, but to lay hold on the prize at the end. But Christian, I know where you're at. This is where I'm at. Oh, we feel this more, we feel this less. But our great desire, our great hope, we long to have Christ and glory and joy and inheritance. And I mean in a way that we don't fully experience right now. 
We long for perfection. We long for the redemption of our bodies. We long for sinlessness. We long to be engulfed with glory. Marvelous glory. Righteous. They'll be as the sun shining in the kingdom of their Father. Do you long for that? I want that. I want it. We long to dwell in a place where there's no more evil. All is good. All is righteous. All is peace. All is made new. And we desperately don't want to miss this. We don't want to somehow lose this inheritance. We don't want something to go wrong so that we miss all the good that we've hoped for. We don't want to get to the place where we realize that all our expectation concerning the life to come turns out to be a mirage. Or a wild dream. Now look. have some of God's blood-bought people in this place. For all of you, Romans chapter 8 exists like a massive, unshakable rock of certainty that our hopes will never be dashed. Someone once told me, well, if you want a breakdown of Romans, the middle part, you basically look at it like this. Romans 6, it's about sin. Romans 7, it's about law. Romans 8 is about the Spirit. And yes, I would agree with that. I would agree that those three things are found in those three chapters. But if we stop there, we miss the much bigger picture that Paul is painting. Paul is going somewhere with all this. He has an agenda. An agenda of driving home the absolute unshakable position of the child of God. If you know the freedom spelled out in chapter 6. And you're not under the law of Romans 7. And the Romans 8 power of the Spirit, Paul said, is through your life and you find it yielding the first fruits of the Spirit. That's, that's mentioned back in verse 23. First fruits. You know, you're putting to death sin by the Spirit. You're being led by the Spirit. You have the Spirit of adoption so that you're crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit is bearing witness that you are sons. The Spirit is helping you in prayer, verses 26 and 27. If you have all those first fruits, if you can look at this, sin no longer has dominion in my life. I am no longer under the law. I am married to Christ. I look and I see the Spirit's reality is in my life. Paul says, look, I want to give you such hope you will never lose this salvation. You are on such a girded foundation. You cannot be shaken. There is security and stability and solidity. It isn't even remotely conceivable to Paul that anything but permanent good can follow the Christian all the days of his life and right out into eternity. Brethren, Just listen to the confidence and certainty after Paul has been developing all that is real about the Christian's life. He comes to the place and he says, we know everything in your life is going to work out for good. We know it. And it's not built on any shallow little weak foundations. It is built on the Almighty Himself. And he says, verse 30, those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now Paul, only Christ is glorified so far. No one else has a redeemed body. No one. We're all waiting for that. Get a little vision of of heaven in, in the Hebrews. It's the souls that we see there. These righteous men. Just men made righteous. Paul, shouldn't you have said all those he justified, he will glorify? You see, in Paul's mind, this thing is done. It's a sealed deal. Past tense. It's as good as done. Mark it down. It's done. God determined it. It's happening. 
So much so, he can write it off as a past event, even though it hasn't happened to any of us yet. It's so certain. Verse 31, if God is for us. That's what this whole thing has to do. God is for us. Who can be against us? Verse 32. And look at the reason he... Look, he gave his own son for you. Is he going to hold back any other good from you? He gave you the greatest good. Is he going to hold back anything lesser? Verse 34, Jesus Christ intercedes for you. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 38, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Paul's mind, the thought that a true Christian can lose their salvation or fail to ever obtain the fullness of the inheritance and glory that awaits them is absolute folly and absurdity. None can ever be pried away from this love of Christ. If God is for you, that's all that matters. Nothing can ever change that. Romans chapter 8 is a virtual culmination. It is a climax of the absolute total security and unshakable guarantee of the final perseverance of the one who believes in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Christian, nothing can ever knock you over inside the walls of this salvation. Can you all see that? I wanted to start out this morning by emphasizing the whole context here in which Romans 8.28 is planted. When Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, he wants those of us inside this promise to feel that our lives are planted on some great unmovable rock. He wants us to feel that nothing can go wrong. Nothing can ever spoil our hope. Nothing can blow us over inside the God-fortified walls of Romans 8.28. Look, outside this promise, out there, even inside some of you, there's a world of doubt. There's a world of insecurity and confusion and uncertainty. You're full of fears. You're full of worries. Hopelessness. But inside this promise, everything changes. Almighty God surrounds us above and below and on the right hand and on the left with security and stability and good. The Father of glory has us in His hand. We have a refuge and hope that are without equal. Christian, when you came to Christ, you entered the very walls of this fortress for good. It may not always seem good. Sometimes it may seem rough. It may seem hard. May seem like you can't make it to the next day. You have questions. You're trying to figure out why. Why me? Why now? Why? I want you to know if you've been bought by the blood of Christ, the Lord's gaze is upon you. You may feel lonely. But what this says is God is for you. Who can be against you? He's for you. His gaze is upon you. He knows His own. His constant thought towards you is, I am for you. For Christ's sake, I bend my entire will to do you good. Brethren, I mean, think about this. I don't know where you're all at. Some harder, some not so hard right now in your life. But can you think of any promise that surpasses this one? You can think of a lot of good promises in the Scriptures, but I don't think you can produce one that goes above this. 
There may be others that are on a par with, that are equal with this thing. But there really is nothing beyond this. Look, what we're talking about today, it's not some insignificant, obscure religious nonsense for people who have nothing better to do. You know, people might drive by here and say, what are those people doing there? Would they, would they say to Christian when he started running, <laughs> keep running, freak. I was called a freak after I came to Christ. You know, it's not like we just don't have anything better to do. It's not like, well, we're not football fans or basketball fans, so we just don't really have anything better to do. And We don't drink, so we weren't hung over, so we're able to get up in the morning. We just happen to be different. We're talking about things that really matter. We're talking about coming in to the place where the air is just permeated with the love of Christ and no one can separate me from it. I have security. I can't be moved. This world may shake. My life may seem like it's fallen apart. The trials may come. It may seem dark. But all the time, the everlasting arms have me in their grip. I'm not going to lose them. They're holding me. This God who predestined me in the beginning and foreknew me is going to carry me all the way through to the end to glorification and nothing is taking that away from me. Folks, there's really nothing higher than for the it's true that a sinner can be swept by the grace of God into some unshakable realm of total unwavering good. That should just leave us breathless and amazed. Really shouting for joy if we really understood. I want to shout for joy. I feel fairly lifeless this morning. But it certainly has nothing to do with the glory of the text that we're looking at. Now look, you won't really understand why Paul is so worked up if you don't understand what he's saying. He uses terms like called and purpose and predestined and foreknew and justification and glorification. And the whole reason for excitement here sort of falls to the ground if we don't know what those terms mean. And you know, in a lot of contexts, I guess maybe, maybe people know those words. But I think there's probably a lot of you here that don't know all those words. And if you don't know them, then, then the whole argument sort of falls to pieces here. It doesn't really make any sense. You're not going to find a whole lot of hope and comfort out of these things. Unless we can put some good identifiable meaning behind these. I want to tell you this. This morning I want to give our attention to the word called. That you see here at the end of verse 28. Called according to His purpose. Now folks, let's turn our attention to the text itself. One thing that ought to jump at you right away. When I say the text, I'm talking verse 28 specifically. One thing that ought to jump out at you right away when you look at this verse, is the fact that Paul gives us two separate descriptions of those who are beneficiaries of this promise. This is not a promise for all men. It only applies to those described. And Paul is not saying that there are two separate groups of people to whom this promise applies. First to those who love God, and second also to those who are called according to His purpose. This is one group of people with two things that are true of the same group of people. They love God on the one hand 
And they're called according to God's purpose on the other. But have you ever asked yourself or wondered, maybe you can ask yourself this right now, why, why does Paul give us two descriptions? Why does he need to do that? Paul, why not just say that this promise is for those who love God? Why do you feel so compelled to also add for those who are called according to his purpose? I mean, wasn't the description full enough and complete enough the first time? Now, I'll tell you this. Paul doesn't waste words. If he, if he gives you something, it's because there's some good reason to have it. I believe it's because even though they're both descriptions of the same people, one, and think about this, one emphasizes our action towards God, right? What's that action? We love Him. The other description emphasizes God act, God's action towards us, which is what? Called. When we talk about those who love God, we see who this promise applies to. Because if we were just told those who are called according to His purpose, well, we'd look around the room and say, well, who is that? So He gives us, they're the ones that love God. So we can look around and I can identify you. If I look at your life and it looks pretty good, you love God, you look at your own life, you can say, well, wow, that's something God worked in me. That's good evidence that I'm a partaker of this promise. That's characteristic of all true Christians. They have a love for God. But, he goes further. He not only tells us who the ones that love God the promise belongs to, when he talks about those who are called according to his purpose, we see why this promise is true of those who love God. Paul wants us to know what these privileged people look like, so he says they love God. But he also doesn't want us to be misled into thinking that my love is the basis of this promise. It isn't. This promise is certain and unfailing, not because of my love, but because of God's calling. Do you see that? Paul is in no way wanting us to think that this massive promise rests on my love. That is not a good foundation for this promise. My love fluctuates. It certainly is not the solid bedrock unmovable underpinnings for a promise of this scale. My love is often like the shifting sands. It's variable. It's unstable. Yes, love for God is a defining characteristic of a Christian. But at my best, it ebbs and flows. It ebbs times of greater intensity, times of lesser. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. God forbid that this promise be built on that. I desperately need a foundation that's greater than that, much greater than that. I need to know that I am not the key to upholding this promise. And Paul comes to my rescue right there. Delivers me from any such idea. He says, God is the key here. It is God who makes this promise true for you, or it won't be true at all. The massive undergirdings of the promise of all things working together for good have to do with what He does, not with what I do. And that alone is where my security comes from. What is it that He does? He calls. Christians are described as those who are called according to His purpose. Okay, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be called of God? A number of images probably immediately flash through our minds. I call you on your cell phone. I call my son inside from playing outside. I call someone by name. I'm called at the doctor's office when it's my turn to come in. Hunters might use a duck call. Get the ducks to come a little closer. I, somewhere I've heard The Call of the Wild. Isn't there a movie called that? And what's that? Some kind of inspiration or, you know, uh, drawing to go out to the wilderness or something? I don't know. Maybe I, I don't think I watched it. I just heard the name. But I mean, we use the word call in a whole no, number of different ways. What are we talking about? What really matters 
is that we figure out how Paul's using the word in Romans 8.28. What is the biblical concept behind being called by God? So I want to try to paint a picture for you all as to what this call looks like. Some of you probably have never even heard this. Called. I mean, I know about being saved. It seems like I've heard maybe you talk about this justification thing a number of times. I mean, you have to if you're going through the book of Romans. But called. I mean, I've never even heard of that. Maybe some of you are, are thinking that way. What, what is this? Now, whether you're familiar with this or not, I trust we can, we can all agree with a starting point here. When you look at Romans 8.28, you can figure out that being called by God is not something I dreamed up, right? I mean, it's there. Called according to His purpose. It's no invention of mine. This is something God does, and it's something God wants us to know that He does. So what is it? What is the call of God? I want to show you six aspects of this call, and then we'll sum it up at the end into just kind of a concise definition. First, when someone is called by God. He is calling them from one place to another. Now, you know, that's interesting because, you know, I've read systematic theologies before and I've looked at the different definitions of called before, but I can never remember that being part of it. And yet, if you go through your New Testament and you examine every place Called, calls, calling, you know, words of that basic family. You find this aspect over and over and over and over again. God calls us from one place to another. From one condition to another. From one existence to another. Sort of. Now, did you catch that? Sort of. Anytime you want to try to illustrate these things, sometimes they fall sadly short. But it's sort of like. When I call my children from outdoors to come in for supper, they're in one certain place and condition, and I'm calling them to leave that place and to come inside to another place and get condition. Now look, the call of God. Now I'm, I'm, I'm doing six points here, guys. I'm on the first one. Just to have, I don't want anybody falling asleep or losing track. First thing, and it's important that we get this, God's call is like a summons. You know what a summons is? Like when somebody's subpoenaed to come? It's, it's, a, it's, it's like a beckoning. It's a summons or a beckoning or a calling to come away from there and come over here. Now, I'll just give you an idea about that. Now, don't turn to all these, but if you're taking notes, you can jot them down. First one is 1 Peter 2.9. Now, listen to this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, that's God, who called you. Now, listen to the call. He called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He calls out of that place and into this place. And it's very... Now, now, when you call out, what, what is the word out and in? In, into. Yeah, they're opposites, but what, what type of word is that? It's a preposition. And it's very interesting how often when you have the idea of calling, you immediately are presented with a preposition. Why? What are prepositions? In. Into, on, I mean, they're positional, right? I mean, you're going to somewhere. Now watch this, Acts 2.39, the Lord our God calls, and I insert men here, but the Lord our God calls men to Himself. So if He calls men to Himself, where were they? What has He called them out of? Being away from Him. When He calls men to Himself, they're away. They're strangers. They're an enmity. They're far away. He calls them to where He is. Listen to this one. Romans 1.6 
Paul calls the Roman Christians, you who are called to, there's your preposition, to where? To belong to Jesus Christ. Which means he called you out of where? Yeah, the place where you didn't belong to him. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful by whom he called, by whom you were called into, there's your preposition, the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you are called into fellowship, where were you called out of? Out of fellowship. You were hostile towards him. 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. That means you weren't there before. 2 Peter 1.3, Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Oh, I love that one. 1 Timothy 6.12, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Romans 1.7, Called to be saints. Or as 1 Thessalonians 4 7, called to holiness. Ephesians 4 4, you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Galatians 5 13, you were called to freedom, which means you were priorly what? A slave. Colossians 3 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called. Y'all see what I'm saying? God calls us out of one place, out of the place of darkness. And it is dark there. Oh, the darkness some of you are in, in this place. Adamic darkness. Demonic darkness. You have no idea of the depths of darkness that have swallowed you up. You may be here today and you, you know you don't know Christ. You don't know the smallest part of the darkness that it means to be outside of Christ. And you know what? The Bible doesn't just say that you're surrounded by darkness. You're enwrapped by darkness. It doesn't just say you're in darkness. Ephesians 5.8 says you are darkness. Without Christ, all is dark. But what happens when a man or a woman is called? The voice of God reaches into that darkness and says, come out of the darkness and come into my marvelous light. The call of God is a call to come to God. To come to God by coming to Jesus Christ. He calls us to belong to Christ, to fellowship with Christ. He calls us to eternal glory, to His glory and excellence, to His marvelous light, to eternal life, to holiness and peace and hope and freedom. He calls us from the place where all things work out for our damnation to the place where all things work together for our good. God calls us out of that darkness and into the arms of Christ. That is critical to the call. God calls you from one place to another. And nobody has ever been called who has not come from one place to another. That is so critical. If there has not been Realm transfer, you are not called. That's the first thing. Second thing, the call of God is always effectual. Now, let me explain. Most of you know that my family has a dog named Tozer. He was in the front yard the other day. And when Tozer sees other dogs, he goes crazy. And a dog appeared in the other yard. And he went over there and did what dogs do and had to sniff out the situation. And I said, Tozer, get over here. Well, amazingly, he came. <laughs> but that certainly is not typical. 
Now the call of God that Paul is describing in Romans 8.28 is not like me calling Tozer. You know why? Tozer might come. Or he might not come. The call of God is not like that. It is like Jesus calling Lazarus forth from the dead. When Jesus cried, Lazarus, come forth! He came. And the only way a dead man comes forth when called is if there is life-giving power ushering forth in the call. The call of God to come out of darkness into God's marvelous light is a call that delivers power to produce the very thing that it commands. How do I know this? Well, just look at Romans 8, verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Now, I really want you to get this. All whom God calls, God also does what to them? Justifies. To justify a man means, even though they're ungodly, God in a legal sense declares them righteous. But no one is ever declared righteous. No one is ever justified unless what happens? Yeah, 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 but we are justified by faith. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, do you see the implication of this? All whom God calls, God also justifies. That means that all who are called by God will without fail do what? Respond to that call by faith in Jesus Christ. Or else they would never be justified. God predestines, then God calls. Then God justifies. If God calls you, you will believe. Because anyone who is called must be justified. And it's only possible to be justified by faith. What does that tell us? It tells us just this. God's call is a sovereign action that raises us up out of spiritual darkness and deadness of unbelief and not only invites us into the spiritual light and life of faith in Christ, but unleashes the actual power that brings us out of the darkness and into that light. In Romans 4.17, God is described as He who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's what we're talking about here. A call that brings life to the dead. A call that calls into existence faith where it did not exist before. Isn't it amazing what small thoughts people have of our God? They imagine Him impotent. You know, wringing His hands helplessly, waiting for sinners to come to Him. Folks, when this God says live, things jump to life. When He says go from the darkness over here to faith in Christ, people leap. There's power in that call. He says believe and men throw themselves at Christ. You can't keep them from coming to Christ. Before they would not come to Christ. And when He says come, they cannot stay away. The call of God is effectual. Every time. Third, when God calls, His voice is always heard in the Gospel. Now don't miss this, or you'll end up like some stupid hyper-Calvinist. You've got to lay hold on this. We get our doctrines of grace and before long, we're bailing out of the Gospel. We don't want to do that. This very mighty, effectual call of God hinges on the Gospel. That is God's mechanism through which His voice calls men and women to come to Christ. Listen to this. 
2 Thessalonians 2.14. God called you. Not apart from the Gospel. Not God calls whether or not we proclaim the Gospel. God called you through our Gospel. Now listen. If you have been called, God called you. You didn't call yourself. God calls. And when He calls, His voice is heard through the human preaching of the Gospel. But when God calls, you hear more than just the voice of the preacher. To these same Thessalonians believers, Paul said, when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, proclaimed by men, in other words, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is. The Word of God, which is at work in you believers. They heard more than just the voice of a man when the Gospel came to them. Lay it down. When and where there is no Gospel, there will be no call of God. But be certain of this. Wherever you find one of those privileged ones who have been predestined, be certain of it. The Gospel's coming. And if you won't proclaim it, God will raise up somebody that will. So, you know what that teaches us? Away with all the gimmicks. Away with all the devices. Away with all the programs. It's amazing the pressure that the church is under, even ours, to always be moving in a direction where, well, if we refine this and make this look prettier and do this and do that and do it. You know what we need? We need to be able to preach Christ crucified. Whether we're meeting in barns, whether we stay here for the next half century, Folks, we've got to have this truth of Christ. We've got to lift up the cross. That's the mechanism through which the voice of God calls sinners. So what if you have the most beautiful programs and you can get all the people coming through the door? This isn't about numbers and it's not about how much money ends up in that box. It's about being used. I want to be a vessel of useful to God. I want this church to see some usefulness in our generation proclaiming this Gospel. Folks, our time is short. Let others play church if they want to. But let us be men and women of the cross, of the truth, of the Gospel. May God's voice thunder through our message in this city. Fourth, I want to emphasize something else. Some will say that the call of God is nothing more than the general invitation of the Gospel. They say, well, yeah, we believe God calls men through the Gospel. That's what God's call is. We, it's equated with the Gospel. And He calls all men without exception. Now, we'll say this. There is a general invitation of the Gospel. There is. When we proclaim the Gospel, we do invite all men to come. In fact, we can command them to come. It's true that we're to call all men to Christ. And we're told, are we not? Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. That indeed is true. But the call of God in Romans 8.28 is much more specific. Because, listen to this, all, in verse 30, all who are called are what? They're justified. And all who are justified are glorified. You see that? That certainly isn't true of everyone who hears the Gospel. Let me show you this even further from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You're not far away from there in Romans. Turn, turn right over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a great text about the call of God. Verse 22. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22. For Jews demand 
signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. You see that? But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But here it is, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now notice this. Is Paul preaching Christ crucified? Yes, that's what verse 23 says. That's good. Because we just saw God's call. Paul said to the Thessalonians, it comes through the Gospel. Now notice, lots of Jews and Gentiles are hearing him preach. But most Jews who hear the Gospel preached find it to be a what? A stumbling block. And most Gentiles find it to be what? Folly or foolishness. But, here's the exception. Paul is singling out a group from all these who find it foolishness and who find it a stumbling block. He's singling out a very particular little group of people. But, to those who are called, implying that all the rest are not. This little group of you who are called, some from Jews, some from Greeks, you find Christ to be the power of God and the wisdom of God. But only if they're called. Do you all see that? All are invited. In that sense, we could say there is a general call to all men. Paul, Paul's preaching the Gospel indiscriminately. He's preaching it to everybody he comes across. But this effectual call of God that I've been talking to you about is not for all men. Some from the Jews and some from the Greeks have been called powerfully and sovereignly by God so that they no longer see Christ crucified as a stumbling block or as foolishness. God has called them with a very particular, individual, specific call whereby their eyes have been opened to see Christ in a whole other light. It's the power and wisdom of God. That's what the call of God does. You can all see that. You have not always known that or you've struggled with God's sovereignty. I want you to see that. Clearly, that is what Paul is saying. It takes the call of God for you to see Christ as more than a stumbling block and more as just a foolish thing. Five. Fifth point I want to make is that men are not called because of anything God sees in them. Romans 8.28 says, men are called according to His purpose. Men are not called because they purpose themselves to be called. Men are called because God purposes them. Now, listen. How often we hear someone say, well, what really happens, yes, we recognize election and predestination are talked about in the Scriptures. We recognize calling is talked about. We recognize that. But this is what all that means. God looked down through the corridors of time. He saw who would believe in Him. So He chooses and calls those whom He saw would believe in Him. But this is nonsense. Those people who say this have never really carefully read and understood Romans 9 and verse 10. Now listen to this. Go back there. If you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or you're in Romans 8, go to Romans 9. I want to read verse 10 and, and a few verses following that. And I want you to see this. Look, the whole point here is not to beat you over the head with a theological system. It's to, it's to take you to the Word of God and help you to see this. Paul's not telling us this to, to deflate people and, and knock people down and bash people and make them feel bad. He's telling us these things to fill us with hope and surety and assurance and to make our salvation real and solid and true and unmovable. Romans 9, verse 10. Not only so, 
And he says that based on what he said before. But look what he's talking about. Rebecca, she'd conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So you have Rebecca and Isaac, and of course they conceived two children. They were twins. And, and they go by the name of Jacob and Esau, and we'll see that in a second. And look at this. Though they were not yet born, and now notice Paul's point right here, and had done neither or had done nothing either good or bad. Now that's important. He emphasizes that because it is absolutely foolishness. It is nonsense to think of God's calling in the context of what somebody is going to do in the future. He's specifically saying it has nothing to do with what they do. Nothing at all. Though they were not born yet and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose... Now remember, we've seen that word purpose before. Called according to His purpose. Now here is His purpose of election. Might continue. Not because of works, but because of His call. She was told the older will serve the younger. There's a prophetic utterance here. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now look, if you say, well, he loved one and hated the other because of anything in them, you have just missed this entire text. The call of God is entirely separate from anything God sees in us or sees that we will do. It is absolutely because they had not been born and had done neither good or bad that he's making his point. He couldn't be clearer. And yet men hate to see this. Why did God choose to love Jacob and not Esau? Purpose of election. Not because of any good or bad. Done by either one of these men. In fact, if God had looked into the future at some of the things that Jacob did, the guy, do you know what his name means? Yeah, he's a deceiver. The guy's a villain. In some ways, Esau might have been even a better guy, you know, humanly speaking. It certainly was not. In fact, you know, this is kind of where Paul's coming from too as far as 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you go back there. You know, he says, brethren, consider your call. I mean, do you really think that you're one of God's people because there was anything outstanding in you? Anything that shone above all others? He says, consider your calling. You know what he basically says? You guys are the off-scouring of the earth. And there was nothing good in you. In fact, you're the very thing and you're made of the stuff that the world passes over. You have no might. Most of you are stupid. I mean, that's basically what he's saying in the vernacular. You had nothing to offer yourself to God. Paul meticulously spelling out for us that it's because God calls whoever He purposes to call with no consideration whatsoever for anything a person will or won't do. Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9, that God saved us and called us because of His own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Okay, number six. You know it's hot? We're almost done. This call of God really is glorious and it's secure. And then sixth and finally, all who are called by God are kept by God. Verse 30. Now, if you're anywhere else, Romans 8 is where I'm referring to. Verse 30. All who are called will be glorified. In fact, as I've already mentioned, it's past tense. It's certain. God will keep you unto the end. Listen. listen. Don't turn there, but just listen to this. Jude 1.1. Jude servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called. Beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. 
1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do what? Keep you. If He calls you, you will believe. You will be justified. You will be glorified. It's an unbreakable chain in Romans 8.30. Let me give you a little definition here. Here's my definition of the call of God. It is an act of God the Father in which He supernaturally summons sinners from out of the darkness and to Himself. He summons people to Himself in such a way that they actually do respond in faith every time. And they respond in faith permanently. This summons always comes by way of the proclamation of the Gospel, though not all that hear the Gospel hear the call of God. So shouldn't we ask the question, what does all this have to do with all things working together for my good? Listen, there are a whole lot of people in the world that believe this. God has done everything God is going to do to get you saved. He's done His part. Now it's up to you to do your part. It's all left up to you and your free will. God's done His part. Now He's stepped back. He leaves you to do your part. So, in the final analysis, our being saved really rests on our shoulders. Whether we love God or not, whether all things work together for good or not, it really depends on me. And whether I make the right decisions or not. You know what? It really isn't very surprising that I'm coming across more and more people. We have young people come into the Bible study, meet people out on these streets. I'm coming across more and more people that think you can lose your salvation. And you know what? It makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, after all, if it's up to me whether I'll be saved or not, and God isn't going to do anything to violate my free will, then if all of a sudden I decide I don't want to be saved anymore, or if I quit believing in Jesus then God certainly isn't going to do anything more about preventing me from falling than He did about getting me saved in the first place. See, men in their stinking pride want to be in control. Because at heart, men want to be God. So he foolishly imagines that he is God. And as soon as he does, you know what? Everything becomes shakable and uncertain and unstable you tell me this. What would you rather have? A God who promises you good only if you can figure out and be smart enough and wise enough to believe in Him and love Him the way you ought to? A God who says, now I've done everything in my power to bring you to me, to make Romans 8.28 real for you, but now it's up for you to do? Would you rather have that? Or would you rather have the glorious God that Paul's describing here in Romans 8? who foreknows and predestines with precise purpose and then comes storming into our darkness and yanks us out of there and sets us on the rock of Christ and determines to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, makes certain we have faith, justifies us and takes us all the way to glory. And He's there carrying us. He's there surrounding us. He's there for us. He's there giving us all good things. He makes every single point of this thing happen. Listen. Nothing in this is left to chance. Nothing at all. There's absolute confidence in this. Look, when the storms of life blow against you and things begin to shake and the very fabric of your soul is being torn apart, the hounds of hell are on your heel. When things come in your life you never thought you would have to experience and the tears are falling freely and you can't figure out what's up and down, you tell me you want a God who stands over in the corner wringing His hands, bidding sinners to come, but He's just impotent or decided not to help? You want that? 
You can have it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I want the God who plans and purposes and brings about every minuscule element in my life. And He brings it for the very specific purpose to work good in me and to conform me to the image of His Son. He's purposed it. He's bringing it to pass. He's for me. He's there. He's, Paul's absolutely persuaded. We are more than conquerors in all this. Not a single thing will come into your life to harm you. And the reason it won't isn't because God's some impotent Santa Claus off somewhere. It's because He's right there. And with His almighty sovereignty and power, He holds you in the palm of His hand. And not a thing comes against you, into your life, under you, over you, around you, that He has not specifically purposed. Even right down to the smallest little thing, smallest little breeze that crosses your face, He determined it in eternity past. That's the faith I want. That's the religion I want. That's the Christianity I want. And when you believe in that, this whole thing about good in your life rests on a solid foundation. Even when you can't figure it all out, that's the basis upon which you want this promise built. You're dismissed.